Hello, this is Kristen Godsey with the AK47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works and writings of Alexandra Kolontai. And I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of two recent books. One is Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And my new book, which is just out, is called Second World, Second Sex, Socialist Women's Activism and Global Solidarity During the Cold War with Duke University Press. That one just came out a couple weeks ago, and it looks at international alliances of socialist women, particularly between Bulgaria and Zambia uh, between 1968 and 1990. Uh, And a lot of the work of the women that I am studying was obviously inspired by somebody called Alexandra Kolontai, who is the subject of this podcast. So one of the things that I want to talk about today is the issue of abortion. Since the Soviet Union was the first country in the world to legalize abortion for women in 1920, and I have a piece of writing from Alexandra Kolontai from 1921, which is called uh, The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. And I'm just going to read a section where she talks about the abortion law. So uh, here's just a selection that I'm going to read, and then I'll have a little bit of a conversation with a special guest after the reading. This is Alexandra Kolontai. I would like to say a few words about a question which is closely connected to the problem of maternity the question of abortion, and Soviet Russia's attitude to it. On the 20th of November 1920, the Labor Republic issued a law abolishing the penalties that had been attached to abortion. What is the reasoning behind this new attitude? Russia, after all, suffers not from an overpopulation of living labor, but rather from a lack of it. Russia is thinly, not densely populated. Every unit of labor power is precious. Why, then, have we declared abortion to be no longer a criminal offense? Hypocrisy and bigotry are alien to the proletarian politics. Abortion is a problem connected with the problem of maternity, and likewise derives from the insecure position of women. We are not speaking here of the bourgeois class, where abortion has other reasons, the reluctance to divide an inheritance, to suffer the slightest discomfort, to spoil one's figure or miss a few months of the season, etc. Abortion exists and flourishes everywhere, and no laws or punitive measures have succeeded in rooting it out. A way round the law is always found. But secret help only cripples women. They become a burden on the labor government, and the size of the labor force is reduced. Abortion, when carried out under proper medical conditions, is less harmful and dangerous, and the woman can get back to work quicker. Soviet power realizes that the need for abortion will only disappear when Russia has a broad and developed network of institutions protecting motherhood and providing social education. Soviet power has therefore allowed abortion to be performed openly and in clinical conditions. Besides the large-scale development of motherhood protection, the task of labor Russia is to strengthen in women the healthy instinct of motherhood, to make motherhood and labor for the collective compatible and thus do away with the need for abortion. This is the approach of the labor republic to the question of abortion, which still faces women in the bourgeois countries in all its magnitude. In these countries, women are exhausted by the dual burden of hired labor for capital and motherhood. In Soviet Russia, the working woman and peasant woman are helping the Communist Party to build a new society and to undermine the old way of life that has enslaved women. As soon as woman is viewed as being essentially a labor unit, the key to the solution of the complex question of maternity can be found. 
In bourgeois society, where housework complements the system of capitalist economy and private property creates a stable basis for the isolated form of the family, there is no way out for the working woman. The emancipation of woman can only be completed when a fundamental transformation of living is effected, and lifestyles will change only with the fundamental transformation of all production and the establishment of a communist economy. The revolution in everyday life is unfolding before our very eyes. And in this process, the liberation of women is being introduced in practice. So that was a selection uh, from The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy from 1921 about the status of abortion in the Soviet Union in 1920. And with me today, I have a guest, uh, a very well-known famous poet named Annie Finch, who is also in the process of putting together a literary anthology about abortion for Haymarket Press. And uh, and so welcome, Annie, to the Thank podcast. You. Pleasure to be here. And um, I just sort of wanted to sort of sound off on you a little bit about Alexandra Kollontai and this piece that I just read from her 1921 essay and uh, your sort of thoughts about abortion in the Soviet Union. Um, I We were talking earlier and you didn't um, realize or that you just learned recently that the Soviet Union was the first um, country in the world to legalize abortion in 1920. So why do you think it is that so few American women actually know this fact since it's, you know, kind of just a historical reality. That is a really interesting question. Uh, and I remember coming up in the 70s and 80s and being aware that women in the Soviet Union had abortion access, but it didn't really register for me. And I think it's partly because Roe v. Wade was such a heroic narrative that it really eclipsed this other way of, of understanding abortion. And it, it seems to me part of the reason for that is because Roe v. Wade is really focused on this individual woman, this one case, individual rights, and it's cast in that light as the struggle of the individual for rights. And it seems in the Soviet Union, it's much more about the, the group and, and, and the good of the culture and the, the good of women as a group. And that's just so needed now, I think, to, to realize um, the, more I, the more I move on, the more, the more I discover that matricultural values are, are really important to me and that I don't function as well as an individual as I do when I'm connected with other women in a kind of a network. And uh, to look at abortion in those terms is something that I think is a little foreign to, um, to Western women or women in the U.S. who are really raised to privilege the individuality. Right. And I, yeah, I, I mean, reading that passage for me, I think what was so interesting about it is she really talks about how, you know, motherhood is something that collectively, that is, is a collective thing, yeah. right? Because women are contributing to society, they're contributing workers, they're contributing, you know, population to the sparsely populated, you know, countryside right. or whatever. Um, and so rather than focusing on abortion as something that women choose, and she even says in that essay, right, it's not because you're worried about how the inheritance is going to be divided right. or that you might ruin your figure or... <coughs> um, of course, she has to be careful not to cast it as a decadent thing. Right? Yeah, so she's walking that line of yeah. like trying to prevent herself from being called a bourgeois feminist. Or self-indulgent. Right. Or self-indulgent yeah. or like, you know, so she's very careful to protect the role of motherhood yeah. as a sort of an important role for women. But she basically makes this argument that the reason that abortion should be free is because um, it, it, our whole society will be better off when women are able to combine. For the good of the state. But I found editing this anthology, A, a Womb of Our Own. Uh, a Womb of Our Own. I love that name. Oh, it's such a great name. Thank you. Um, 
and that was actually a collectively arrived at name. It had another title for us, was not nearly as good. And you know, I, I just feel this whole process has helped me appreciate the importance of women's bonds in the question of abortion. So one of my favorite sections of the book is the section that has to, it's called the heart, and it just has to do with the stories that women tell of the people who supported them during their abortion, whether it's a friend or their mother or their daughter or their doctor or, or the people who didn't support them. And I, I think really one of the biggest tragedies of abortion in our country now that, that I've understood through read, editing this book is the um, the lack of support that women have, the lack of being part of a network during this incredibly profound and challenging moment in your life when you need, it's like having a baby, you want that support of a network of women and how isolated the experience can be. So I, I think it's a very interesting piece to bring into the mix. And I just want to say thank you for this podcast because I had not heard of Alexandria Col- Alexander Kolontai. Alexander yeah. Kolontai. And I've just re- had my eyes open and I'm really excited. And just knowing that these, such a strong woman was out there doing such cool stuff in like 1920. And I'm really yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, she starts writing at yeah. the end of the 19th century, and she has these really strident texts, right, that are all about women's rights. And, and again, it's never framed in terms of individual women's rights. It's always about women's role in building the collective, women's role in building the future of socialism, women's role in the revolution, women's role in supporting, you know, uh, labor. And so it's, it's a very different way of thinking about women's rights than we're used to in the United States. But I think that... Yeah. A lot of us, you know, uh, a lot of women who are self-identified as feminists, especially in the yes. United States, would get a lot out of reading Kolontai, don't you think? Yes, I do think so, because exactly this perspective is what's been missing from feminism. And the irony is that, uh, to me, the more I ponder as a poet and a writer and a spiritual person, the more I ponder what it means to be a woman, it, to me, it's all about unity and network and collective and, and just feeling connected with other people. And so the irony that feminism has become this kind of heroic solitary pursuit where you know women are like these silos away from each other is it's just quite tragic and I think this is a really good corrective to look at the work of someone like her yeah, yeah definitely I mean I think that that's the problem you know there's been this terror you know consistent critique of like Sheryl Sandberg lean in kind of feminism which is yeah. all about the individual working harder and getting your partner to work harder yeah. and um, and it's it's not about building communities of women. And I think yeah. that Kolontai really is, you know, one of the sort of first, you know, major political figures. She was the commissar of social welfare in the Soviet Union, and she tried to implement all these laws for kindergartens and creches and mending cooperatives and public laundries. And she liberalized divorce and eventually, obviously, helped liberalize abortion. So she was doing all of the things that later subsequent feminists in this country right. tried to get done, yes. right? Um, and I think she was, you know, briefly kind of had a renaissance, as you said, in the 70s. There was an interest in yeah. these old Soviet feminists, you know, so Soviet women's activists, I would call them, because I think that feminists, I don't think Kolontai would have ever accepted that name for herself. Yeah. Um, but she's been forgotten, largely. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that, that the way that we should be thinking about feminism, maybe in women's activism today, is more collective and that it's useful, you know, yeah, to go yeah, back yeah. and read these primary texts, even if they're from a slightly different era and obviously Absolutely. a very different context. Yeah. Did her, to what extent did her um, agenda influence the, the 70s feminist agenda? Hugely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to the extent that there were, you know, socialist feminists in the United States and certainly in Western Europe, a lot of them were going back and reading Colin Tai. So Gloria Steinem or whatever. 
or you know. no, not Gloria Steinem. No, not those people. But but um, I think people, you know, like for instance, maybe Silvia Federici was yeah. going back and and but I mean, like Gloria Steinem was out there in the mainstream advocating for exactly these policies. So right? Were they like third hand by the time they got to her? Well, I think to the extent that there was. Um, a recognition that there were positive things being done for women on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I think Western feminists really tried to distance themselves from that because they didn't want to be called communists. They didn't want to be associated with the Eastern Bloc. And so the strategy for second wave feminism in the United States as it you know, eventually grew into liberal feminism was really to sort of accommodate, accommodate the movement to capitalism. And Nancy Fraser has written a lot about this, how, you know, feminism sort of became the handmaiden of neoliberalism in many ways. And I think that starts to happen in the 70s. And it's partially because the socialist feminists who were reading Kolontai in the 70s understood that women would only truly be free if you completely restructured the economic system. And that was just really not going to happen in the United States. So that if meant Gloria that... Gloria had waited for that to happen first, she never would have gotten anything done that she wanted to get done. So yeah. Exactly. So it was, but it's just interesting to me that the similarity in the agendas. Exactly. Like, even exactly. though coming from such different points of view. Right. It's like, this is what women need, however we're going to get to it. Yeah, yeah. That's and I think that it's, you know, it's it's there's a whole history of how feminism in the United States was in many ways reacting to claims that were being made in places like the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries about women's rights. And um, and it, it all goes back to the kind of Cold War competition that the West really was looked bad in comparison to some of these Eastern Bloc countries. In terms of women's rights. Anyway, I just think it's really fun to, it's interesting to go back and, you know, you had asked me, did she write anything about abortion? And it was fun to actually go back and see that, in fact, she did she write about abortion. Right. And she was defending the Soviet policy and saying that, you know, in the Soviet Union, women would be free, uh, truly free, only when they can properly, when the state supports them and their motherhood, their sorry, in their role as mothers and their role as workers. Yeah, which is something that we still haven't figured out, right? Yeah, in 2019. What do you think she would have said about a woman who was like, you know, I, I just don't want to have children? Like, do you think she would have considered that like decadent? Yeah, or? I think so. I think she yeah. was very pronatalist. I think that she felt that motherhood was really kind of a a social obligation of women economically economically because yeah. of, because you need, I mean and she was a mother she did have one child I mean obviously I don't think she would have been angry at women who couldn't have children right yeah. in, in the sense that they, you know, that they were infertile or something like that but I think that she would have definitely frowned upon women who chose not to have yeah. children unless they chose not to have children because they didn't have the material basis to support those children which is precisely why she supported abortion right so she basically wanted her, in her vision, once society provided the material basis for women to have children and be able to do that with their work and, you know, being full citizens and not dependent yeah. on their husbands, then women should have children. Yeah. Right? And this is why it's not it's ever about... disturbing. It is disturbing. It's very pro, pro, very pro-natalist. Yeah. And it's why um, it's not about individual rights. Right? For, in for, her case. In her right, case. Right, it's right. really about the collective. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that we have yeah. to keep that in mind when we, we, we read about... It's 1917. Yeah. It's Russia... There's been a, you know, she wrote this in 1921, this yeah. essay. And so that Russia had just come yeah. through World War One. It come through yeah. the Civil War. There had been a terrible famine. And so this was a very weak state, which was largely, you know, very um, sparsely populated and had taken a major hit in yeah. terms of demographic, you know, death. Yeah. So it's a moment when 
reproduction is probably really high on the agenda. And so even at that moment, it is interesting that the Soviet Union decides to legalize abortion. That is interesting, actually. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a good sign. And she was largely responsible for that? Yeah. That's pretty cool. So maybe it was also... I mean, we don't know what she would have done in different circumstances. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like, it was a survival strategy for the culture, but it was also a survival strategy for her politically to f- couch it in those terms and to be a natalist, right? Exactly. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, this was a fun conversation to have. I've been talking to Annie Finch, and this is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. I'll be back, hopefully soon, with another reading from the selection of the works of Alexander Kollontai. Until next time, bye. Bye.